If you have your Bible, turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. I do want to welcome everyone who is here, those who have joined us uh, over in the summit service. I was over there just a few minutes ago, and then all those that are watching us uh, from home, uh, either streaming or on our television broadcast. Uh, I, I want to tell you, remind you, uh, that time is, uh, time is one of the most important things in, in each of our lives. And we have a lot of different ways that we keep up with the time. Most of you have on a watch, right? You look and see what time it is. Uh, as it gets close to the time I'm supposed to finish preaching, I see a lot of people looking at their watches. Uh, then a lot of us keep time with our telephones, right? We, our cell phones tell us what time it is. Now, those of uh, you who are a little younger may not realize this, but even before there were cell phones, we still used our phone to tell the time, but we did it differently, right? Those of you who've been around a while, I'm sure this is how it happened in Nacogdoches. There was a telephone number you could call and you would call that number and it would tell you the time and the temperature. Did you do that? And so over and over, I guess every day when I was, when I was young, me or my family would call that number, make sure our clocks were right. That's how we would tell the time with a phone uh, in the olden days. Uh, but through the years, people have used sundials, people have used candles to keep up with the time, hourglasses. Uh, we, we, we've had so many different ways. I, I suppose the the best way to keep up with the time, the flow of time, is just to look at how it impacts our lives. Uh, so we, in the morning, call that breakfast time, and then we look forward to lunch time. If you say lunch time, everybody knows what time you're talking about. And then we talk about supper time or dinner time. Or you can look at the different phases of life. We talk about infants and toddlers and, and kids and teens and young adults and middle-agers and senior adults. Uh, or, I suppose you could track time by what you lose. So when you're about five or six years old, you lose your teeth, right? Then a little later, you lose your innocence. Then you lose your hair. Then you lose your energy. And then it starts all over and you lose your teeth again. <laughs> so you could track your time just by what you, what you have lost. My, my point is that time always marches on. We're born, we live, and we die. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Time marches on. I can say this because she's in the summit service this morning, but my wife turns 50 tomorrow. Tomorrow is her 50 birthday, 50-year birthday, and so I told her last week uh, that I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what it's like to be married to an old woman. <laughs> well, then she showed me what it looked like <laughs> to be, give me a, a preview but every year about this time, I like to pause and preach a message that we just, we focus on, on time. When the winter winds begin to blow, it reminds us uh, that time is passing. When the, when the leaves begin to turn and begin to fall, it reminds us that, that there is time, but time passes on. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, the Bible commands us to redeem the time. And I want to share with you this morning exactly how uh, we can do that. And so every year that I've been your pastor, I've preached a message uh, this week or sometimes the first week of December uh, that I've called Come Before Winter. Uh, now that's not an original title to me. Uh, many years ago, 1915, Clarence McCartney, uh, not likely a name you know, but perhaps uh, he was a Presbyterian minister and he preached a message, Come Before Winter, 
at Arch Street Presbyterian Church, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And it really sparked a revival. A revival that started among the businessmen there in Philadelphia began to spread throughout the city and the state and that whole part of America. It was a life-changing sermon. And so uh, McCartney decided he would preach the same sermon again the next year. And word for word, he stood up and preached the same sermon. And he did that for 40 years. Some people have suggested it's the greatest sermon ever preached on American soil. Uh, McCartney died in 1957. The next year, right here in Texas, uh, Criswell, uh, the pastor of First Baptist Dallas, decided to uh, pick up the mantle and he preached the sermon. Again, almost verbatim. And for years, uh, Chris will preach that sermon. Today, pastors all across the world uh, this time of year uh, preach a sermon, their own sermon perhaps, but, but similar sermons uh, titled Come Before Winter as we take a look at the passing of, of time. And so look with me in Ephesians, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I just want to begin to read some verses and I'll explain the setting as we go. Verse 6 says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. These are the words of Paul. He's talking about his death. He has lived a life. He compares this life to an offering poured out before the Lord, but it's, it's about gone. Death is close. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. So the Apostle Paul, we believe, wrote this from a jail cell. He has been arrested for his faith, for saying that Jesus is risen, and he is in the city of Rome. And so somewhere between about 64 and 68 AD, he was executed in that jail cell. 64. In 64, the city of Rome burned, and the emperor Nero blamed it on the Christians. He probably did it himself for, for some political reasons that wouldn't mean much to us today, but the city burned, and there was a great persecution of Christians that followed. We know that Nero died of sort of suicide in 68, so between 64 and 68, Paul was killed. He's in prison when he writes, when he writes these words. Uh, it, it, it's easy to hear the finality in, in these words. Do you see it? Uh, the time has come for my departure. My departure is close. I have, I have fought the good fight. Uh, Paul knows that his life is about over. Now continue to read verse 9. He says, make every effort to come to me soon. So this is a letter he's writing to a man by the name of Timothy, pastor of the church of Ephesus probably at this time. So make every effort to come to me soon. Now that's perhaps the most important sentence in all that we're going to read. So notice it. Make every effort to come to me soon. Because Demas has deserted me uh, since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you. For he is useful to me in the ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially uh, the, the parchments. Now, it's interesting here. Timothy 
is told by Paul, I want you to come and I want you to come quickly. And there's some things I want you to bring when you come. The first thing you need to bring, of course, is yourself. Paul wanted to see Timothy. Timothy uh, was, uh, was, was meaningful to Paul, valuable to Paul. There was a close relationship between the two. But notice he also asked for some other things. He asked that Timothy bring Mark. Now, I don't know if you know the story, but Mark, one of the disciples, uh, you read about Mark and Paul back in the book of Acts going on a mission trip together. But Mark didn't follow through like Paul thought he should follow through. And so there was this big split. There was this big division between the apostle Paul and Mark. And so they go their separate ways. Well, what happens after that big division? Well, we know here by the end of Paul's life that that had been mended, that Paul had reached out to Mark or maybe Mark had reached out to Paul and these two men, they had solved their division. They had come back together. This is the mark of a spiritual man. This is the mark of a spiritual woman that we don't let divisions just fester in our lives, but we work somehow to fix them. And Paul had done that. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, when you come, bring Mark with you because I miss him and I need him and I want him, I want him to come. Another thing that, uh, that Paul asks for is his cloak. Uh, he, he knows that, that winter is coming. It's about to get cold uh, in this prison cell. And so he asks for his, for his cloak. Now, I, I thought here I would just take a moment and read to you a little bit of the original message uh, preached Uh, in Philadelphia all those many years ago, just to give you a flavor of what that was like. He talks about the coat, the cloak. Here it is. He is to bring the cloak too, which Paul had left at the house of Carpus in Troas. What a robe the church would weave for Paul if it had that opportunity today. But this is the only robe that Paul possesses. It had been wet with the brine of the Mediterranean, white with the snows of Galatia, yellow with the dust of the Ignatian Way, and crimson with the blood of his wounds for the sake of Christ. It is getting cold at Rome, for the summer is waning, and Paul wants his robe to keep him warm. And so uh, McCartney was a, uh, he, he was a master of words. Now, a, a third thing that, that Paul asks for Timothy to bring is his books. And I'm impressed with this. Even at the end of Paul's life, he has not lost the desire to learn more, to learn more about God and his word. He, he knows that his, that his days are coming to an end. It's not like he's going to do a lot more preaching or a lot more teaching. He knows he's about to die, but still he has such a hunger for, for knowledge, for spiritual truth in God's word that he says, bring me my books. I want to study to the very end. I think this is another mark of a spiritual man or a spiritual woman that we never tire of studying God's word, that we all always have a desire to dig deeper, to know more, to learn more about about our Savior, and Paul Paul had that. Now, I want you to see one more verse here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse 21, and in fact, we'll just look at part of the verse. Paul says, make every effort to come before winter. There's that phrase, come before winter. You see that the first few words of verse 21 really match the first few words of verse 9. In verse 9, make every effort to come. In verse 21, make every effort to come. These are tied together. Paul is saying, Timothy, please, it's urgent. Come now. Come before winter. I need you. Here, bring these things and come 
soon. Now, why was Paul so urgent about this? Why was this such a big deal to Paul? Well, let, let me share with you three reasons why it was urgent. First of all, the brevity of life. Paul knew that life was short. He really had written his obituary back in verses 6 and 7 and 8 that we read a moment ago, and he knew that there were just a a few drops left in his life. He, he saw his life as a, as a drink offering being poured out to the Lord, and it's almost gone. He knew that every time the door opened in his jail cell, it could be the executioners who have come to take him away. He knew that every time he had a meal, it might be his last meal. He knew every time he saw the sunset, if he did see the sunset, that it might be the last time he saw the sunset. He was awaiting his execution he knew life was short. Now, here's why that's important for us. Our lives are short. Now, not because we're awaiting execution, but just because life is short. Life is brief. And we need to have the same urgency because we understand the same things that Paul understood. Life is short. None of us know uh, what's going to happen tomorrow. None of us know what's, what's next on our agenda. Listen to James chapter 4 says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year here and do business here and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, right? Who would have guessed a year ago that this is what life in America would be like today? I mean, if you'd have suggested this a year ago, people would have thought you were crazy. They would have locked you up if you said this a year ago. None of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. And then he says at the end of that passage, for you are like a vapor that is here only a little while, and then it vanishes. Life is brief. And even if you live to a ripe old age, life is still brief. Life goes faster and faster and faster the older you are, right? I remember when I was a young person and people would tell me that, I just thought that they were, that they were nuts. I thought you get old, you lose your hair, you lose your mind, you say crazy things. But as, uh, as someone who's you know, much older than I was a few years ago, uh, I can see life is going faster and faster and faster. And, and, and undoubtedly, some of you will stop me at the, as we're exiting the, the church this morning and you're going to say, Pastor, you have no idea. And, and I'm sure you're right. I remember as a little boy... Uh, waiting for Christmas. It seemed like this time of year was the slowest time of year ever. And my mom, who ordinarily was a great, a great mom, but she was cruel to us between Thanksgiving and Christmas because she would put this calendar on the refrigerator that had one piece of candy for every day between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so we would go and we would unwrap one piece of candy, take it off the little calendar, and you could track how many days till Christmas. And I remember that drove me crazy. Two or three times a day, I would go to the calendar and count how many more days. And then, you know, that afternoon, I'd count it'd be the same number of days. I'd be so frustrated. It seemed like Christmas would never come when I was a little kid. Now, what happens? Thanksgiving and then just bam. It doesn't even seem like there's time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Life goes faster as we get older. Uh, I have to be careful with my words here, but, uh, you know, there's a stage of life when we believe in Santa Claus, uh, there's a stage in life when we become, and then there's a stage in life where we look like. <laughs> I thought I would encourage you this morning by doing some math. I want to compare 
a 78-year lifespan to an 18-hour day. Now, uh, the experts say that we will live on average about 78 years. Uh, I, I know many of you have outlived that, and I hope you all outlive that. Uh, but, but let's just use that number. And let's say that you're born at 6 a.m. So one day, starting at 6 a.m., ending at midnight. So birth at 6 a.m., death comes at midnight. How old is it at your house? And so if you're 25 years old, it is 1146. It's just about lunchtime. If you're 45 years old, it is 423 in the afternoon. If you're 55, it is 642. The sun's beginning to set. If you're 65, it's 9 o'clock. It's dark outside. If you're 75, it is 1118 p.m. What time is it for you? Happy holidays. <laughs> Just in case you don't have the message, let me compare the same 78-year lifespan to a calendar. You're born on January 1st. Your life ends on December 31st. Uh, what day is it? Well, if you're 30 years old, it's May 20th. If you're 40 years old, it's July the 6th. If you're 50, it's August 22nd. If you're 60, it's October the 6th. If you're 70, it's November the 24th. Listen, I'm trying to convince you of something that Paul understood that gave Paul his urgency, life is brief. Do you know that? Your life and my life, it's brief, it's but a vapor. But there was something else that Paul knew, not only the, the, the brevity of life, but the brevity of opportunity. Uh, Paul and Timothy, they lived uh, about a thousand miles apart. Uh, if you travel by, by sea, it's about a thousand miles. And that's really how you would get from one place to the other, from Ephesus to Rome, uh, is you would, you would sail across the Mediterranean Sea. But the problem is the winter season is the storm season in the Mediterranean. And they didn't have all the fancy weather equipment that we have today and satellites and those kind of things. And I don't know how much that helps us today, to be honest. But, but in those days, you just didn't sail in the winter. Because if you got in the Mediterranean in the winter, there would, it was very likely a storm could come just out of nowhere and it would destroy your ship and you would die. In fact, Paul had been in one of those shipwrecks where they were trying to get somewhere. They should have stopped. They decided they could get just a little further if they would go quickly. And sure enough, they got caught in one of these winter storms and the ship sank and Paul almost died. See, not only is our life brief, but the opportunity to do the things that God would have us to do, that opportunity is brief. Sometimes a door that's open today will not be open to us tomorrow. Sometimes the storm season comes. Sometimes it's winter. Sometimes the very opportunity to do something for God, it's brief. It's brief. And Paul knew that the chance for Timothy to come before winter came, before the storms came, the opportunity the, was, was brief. And, and then the third thing, very quickly, before we get into the, to the heart of the message, uh, there's urgency here because of the dis, disposition of the heart. Over time, our hearts uh, lose their passion. Uh, over time, our hearts cool down. And, and when God put something on our heart, when God convicts us of something, when God calls us to do something and we know we need to confess this sin, we need to fix that relationship, we need to make that decision. If we don't do it then, likely we will never do it. 
the conviction of God, the work of God, over time, just the disposition of our hearts will change. You see that in a parable that Jesus gave in the book of Mark. I'll just read to you a couple of verses. Mark chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus says, And he sowed seed, and some fell upon the path, and the birds came and devoured it. He's talking about the the person who's planning the word of God, maybe, maybe somebody like me, somebody that's preaching the word of God, and I'm casting God's seed to you right now. And he says some of the seed will land, it'll land upon your heart, but because you don't do anything with it, because you don't let it sink down in you and change you, the birds will come and just take it away. The disciples didn't know exactly what that meant, so Jesus explained it a few verses later. He says some are like the word sown on the path, When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes it away. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've seen somebody this close to making a decision that would have changed their life, maybe changed their eternity. But they decided that they would wait till tomorrow or a week from now or a different season in life. And almost every single time, Those people never made the decision that they knew they should make. The disposition of your heart changes. So with that in mind, uh, each year I, I spend some time just praying about what are some areas that the Lord would want us to come before winter what are some areas where we need, to, we need to take up the challenge and we need to do something now? What, what are some things that are urgent in our lives? And I want to share three of those with you today. First of all, we need to come before winter in the area of living life. Living life. I read Ephesians 5:15 to you a moment ago. Let me read it and expand it. It says, pay careful attention to how you walk, making the most of your time, redeeming your time. Now, what's the opposite of redeeming your time? What's the opposite of making the most of your time? Well, the opposite would be to waste your time or to just ignore your time or to be careless with your time. See, I believe the Lord has put something on every person's heart. I believe God has called you to do something. I believe there's a reason that you're still here and still breathing and still have energy. God has something for you to do. Maybe it's some dream, some vision that you're burdened with. Maybe you need to serve in some ministry. Maybe you need to start some work for the Lord. Maybe you need to make an impact on some group of people. Maybe it's kids or or homeless people or, or some other group of people. Maybe you need to engage in some sort of missions. Maybe you need to accomplish some great task that the Lord has put upon your heart. Maybe you need to solve some great problem. But I believe God has called you to do something, and most of us know exactly what that is. I think for some people, God has given you a picture of somebody you should be. Not just something you should do, but somebody you should be. Maybe God has has burdened you to be a father who is known for how much he loves his wife and loves his children. Maybe maybe God has burdened you to be a, a woman who is a woman of prayer. Maybe God has called you to be a person who's who's generous or godly or kind. God has called us to to be somebody. And then I think sometimes there's just a task that God God has burdened us with. Maybe to go and share the gospel with a family member or a friend and their name just keeps coming to your mind. You need to go share, you need to go share, you need to go share. And you just said tomorrow, 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 it's never happened. Maybe God has tasked you with being a blessing to somebody. Maybe God has tasked you uh, to, to adopt children that don't have parents. But I believe God has put something on all of our hearts. The problem is 
for most of us, for most of those things, we genuinely believe that we will do them. We plan to do them. We have the best intentions to do them. But mostly we just wait. I think what we tell ourselves is, I will do those things when life settles down. And I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings this morning, but can I tell you when life will settle down? When you are dead. That's when life will settle down. You can't wait to be obedient to God when life settles down. It'll be too late to be obedient to God. Now's the time. Come before winter. I remember a little over 25 years ago, I was pastoring a church in rural Mississippi, and I did something that, uh, that at the time was, was not very well-received or popular, uh, but it's interesting, since then, I've, I've had so many people reach out uh, and talk about just how the Lord has used that in their, in their lives. So we had a, well, we called it a weekend revival, which I, I was a new pastor at the church, but that was a custom that they had for a long time. And so it was my turn to lead it as the new pastor, a weekend revival. And so I was going to preach on Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. So three sermons in three days. And I decided to make an event out of it. So I said, I'm going to preach on heaven, all three sermons, three sermons in a row on heaven. Uh, but on the first day, when they, when they came on Friday night, everybody was excited. This was something they had done for years, and they were really into it. So they came on Friday night. And I passed out these forms that, uh, that asked them to prepare for their funerals. It asked them to pick out the songs they wanted to be sung, the scriptures that they wanted to be read. And then it asked them to write their obituary. What exactly do you want the pastor to say about you? And so they had Friday night to do it. I reminded them Saturday we're all to bring them together to church on Sunday and, and, and they felt obligated to do it. That's a little bit of just that rural way of life. But not a, none of them enjoyed it. It was misery. But I tell you what, we wrote, we wrote our obituaries of what we wanted to be true of our lives the day we died. And on Sunday morning, many of the people in that church, they gave that obituary to the Lord. And they said, no longer will I wait this is who I want to be for the honor and glory of God. And it's turned into a, a life-changing thing. We've got to understand God has called us to do something and to be something. And we can't just treat this life like it's a dress rehearsal, like it's spring training, spring camp, and it doesn't really count. Now's the time to do what God has, has called us to do. I heard a story, heard a pastor tell a story about Florence, uh, how do you say her name? Uh, Litauer, Florence Litauer, a, a sort of popular Christian writer, singer, I, I, I think. Uh, but she, she wrote in, in a book that came out a few years ago about visiting her mother-in-law in, in a nursing facility, in a memory care facility. And she said it was, it was a difficult visit every time she would go because her mother-in-law just didn't remember very much and didn't know who the family was. But she says one interesting thing is that they would go and visit her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law would be singing opera. And they had never 
heard her sing before. They, they didn't know that she even knew what opera was, but, but they would go to the nursing facility and she'd have people gather around her and she'd just be singing. She'd sing in English. She would sing in Italian. They, they had, they'd never heard her speak a word in Italian. She had these long operas. And if you've ever been to one, you know that they're way too long. She would have these long operas and she would just sing it. And, 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 they said she was actually pretty good at it. I mean, she was older and her voice had, uh, you know, had suffered the effects of, of, of an advanced age, but, but she was pretty good. She was pretty good at that. And so what Florence uh, Litauer said in, in her writing, she said that uh, the family was filled with regret because this gift, and it was obviously a gift, this gift her mother-in-law had had never, had never been exercised. Uh, she had never used her gift when she was young. She had never seen her talent developed. And she writes, my mother-in-law died with a song still in her. I believe today many people die with a song still in them. A challenge never taken, a ministry never tried, a conversation never had, a book never written, a dream never pursued, a song never sung. You know, Christ is our model for all of these things. Christ came with a purpose. Christ came to die. And he did. And we're saved today because, of the, because Christ focused on his purpose. He fulfilled his purpose. And we should fulfill the purpose for which God has placed on our hearts for the glory and honor of God. We need, first of all, uh, to come before winter in the area of living life. But let me give you a second area. We should come before winter in the area of right relationships, writing our relationships. You know, for too many people, for too many Christians, in their lives is the wreckage of way too many relationships that have failed. Have you ever been to a, to a junkyard before? And so you stand in a junkyard and there are all these broken down vehicles around you and they're dented and they're crashed and they're, and they're rusty and, and, and they're destroyed. They're destroyed. But if you think about those cars, you know that there was a time when they didn't look like that, right? You look at that jalopy of a car, but, but, but at one point that was somebody's brand new car. You know that in that car, though it is in bad shape today, there are some great memories. You know that life was lived in that car, but now it's just, it's just a pile of, of scrap metal. And in our lives, let's be honest, we have a lot of broken down, busted up cars. A lot of our lives look like that, uh, uh, that, 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 that yard just, that junkyard just filled with the debris of those broken down cars. And it shouldn't be that way. We should, if we're obedient to scripture, we should come before winter in the area of writing our relationships. There are two kinds of relationships I want to talk about. First of all, broken relationships. In Romans 12, 18, the Bible says, as far as it depends upon you, you should live at peace with all people. You should live at peace with everybody. Broken relationships. I remember preaching a funeral one time a few years ago and 
and, and I knew uh, a lady had died, and I knew her husband very well, and I was talking to him, uh, but the extended family was uh, there at the visitation, and I knew he had a brother. I'd never met him, and uh, his brother was uh, you know, sort of on the other side of the room where we were doing the visitation, and I, and I said to Wade, Wade, won't you take me over and introduce me to your brother? And he said, Pastor, I can't do that because I haven't spoken to my brother in 30 years. Thought, what, what a shame that we as Christians would have such wreckage in our lives. It is time to come before winter in the area of broken relationships, to humble ourselves, to let Jesus be our model, to speak before it's too late. Listen, church, more depends upon this than you know. Listen to how serious Jesus is about it with something he said in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, that means you're coming to worship. You're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus says that this is so important. It, it hinders your worship. Some people can't worship. Some people don't know the joy of worship because they have these broken relationships in their lives. To Jesus, this was important. To us, it should be important. We should come before winter in the area of broken relationships, but also in neglected relationships. You know, I think some of the greatest pain in life comes from the things that we don't say. And I've sat with so many people who have had loved ones pass away, and they have told me, Pastor, there are still things that I, that I needed to say. You know, some of the most valuable things that we have in our lives are these relationships, these people who are closest to us, but oftentimes, these are the things that we neglect the most. I mean, let's just think about it. I, if, if we paid as much attention to our marriage or to our children as we did to our career or our golf game or our gardening or, or something else, what kind of marriages would we have? What kind of families would we have? But we give all of our attention to those kind of things and the details involved in that, and we, we neglect our families. Uh, one of the hardest working pastors I've ever known, sort of a pastor hero of mine, is uh, Johnny Hunt. I don't know if you know that name, not a, perhaps a well-known name, but a few years ago, he, he really burned out in ministry. He, 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 worked, he just worked too much, and, and, and he, just, he just burned out. He suffered from the stress of the hard work he was doing, and his wife was suffering as well, and she said that she was lonely and miserable, and so he, he made a change. And when he, when he made a change, he said a lot of things. But one of, one of those things stuck with me. And I just want to read what he said. He says, I've been running around, killing myself, trying to please people who probably wouldn't even attend my funeral if I got sick and died. But I have neglected my wife who would care for me and empty my bedpan without complaint until my last day. He said, I'm going to change my my focus. Again, Christ is the model. Christ came while we were still sinners to make peace with us, to reconcile us with God. We should come before winter in the area of, uh, of relationships, these neglected relationships. I, um, I, I want to take just a minute and, and just talk to, our, to the men that are here. Men, 
let me talk to you as the person who will likely preach your funeral. Or I will today represent the person who will preach your funeral. And let me tell you something that's going to happen. So the day after you die, I'm going to go and sit down with your wife and, and some other family members will likely be there. And we're going to talk about you. And I can tell you because I've had that conversation hundreds of times, I suppose. We're not going to talk about your promotions. We're not going to talk about the positions you held. We're not going to talk about your awards. We're not going to talk about your golf score. We're not going to talk about your wealth. Your wife won't bring any of that up. And I won't ask about any of it. I tell you, we will sit there for an hour and we'll talk about two things. The love that you had for a small group of people, your family, and the love that you had for the Lord. And I can tell you that will be the beginning and the end of our conversation. We need to make sure that we're living for the things that count. And for most of us, the things that count the most is that we love the Lord and we're not neglecting the closest relationships that we have. And so then the final area we need to come before winter is surrendering to the Savior. This is the most important area. You know, I don't know how long uh, any of us have to live, but I do know that it's appointed unto man once to die. We will die. And after that, the judgment. I know I keep talking about funerals today, but uh, one more time perhaps. Um, when, I was, when I was pastoring in Ohio, most... Most people in Ohio, at least the area I lived in, they didn't have a connection with the church. They didn't have a connection with the pastor. And so when somebody died, there, there was no pastor. Most funerals uh, in that part of Ohio anyway happened without any pastor or preacher. Uh, so I went to all the funeral homes in the area. There were three or four or five of them, I don't remember. And I, I told the funeral home, listen, I'll preach anybody's funeral. Anybody, anytime. I don't need any money. You just call me and I'll come. If I don't have something, I'll come even last minute. And so I did a lot of funerals in Ohio, a lot more funerals there than I do here. And so I'll, I'll tell you how it went. So I would get a call. And these are people that I'd never met before. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. But I'd get a call, and so I would go to the funeral home about one hour before the service. The family would be there. We would sit in a room. They'd close the door. And I would ask, I would ask about the person who had died. I would ask the wife about her husband or the children about their, about their mother or their father and and so they would tell me a little bit. I'd take a few little notes so that I could, you know, speak to those things. But then I would ask, because this is the whole reason I was doing these funerals, uh, I would ask about the person's spiritual life. I was there really to share the gospel. That was my interest in this. And so I'd ask about the, the, the man's spiritual life or the, or the mom or father's spiritual life. And it was interesting. The family would, you, you would see them scrambling a little bit with their words and they would tell these stories of what they thought was evidence that their lost loved one had had some connection with God. 
And, and they'll tell you, and I think they're true stories. They'd say, well, I remember there was a crisis and, and he called out to the Lord. Or I remember there, you know, he lost his job one time. And so he went to the church and he did this. And so, so they tell these stories. And in their minds, and you can tell they're desperate to believe this. In their minds, those stories, that's evidence that their lost loved one had a relationship with God. Now, I don't know anybody's relationship with God. I don't have some special insight into that, but I want you to know as a Bible teacher and as a pastor, I saw it completely different than they did. They thought that this was evidence that, that their loved one was saved. I saw it as evidence that God had convicted their loved one, that God was working in that loved one's life, that God was calling that loved one to, to surrender and, and to give his or her life to the Lord. I saw it as the patience of God working in the life of a person who never did respond to the, to the grace of God. You see, so, so many of us, if we're just honest, there are all these signs in our lives that God is working, that God is drawing us, that God is, God is convicting us of our sin, that God is reminding us that there's someone who's in charge of everything and that he is our only hope. But none of that is worth anything if we don't respond. None of it's worth anything. Now, I would never stand up at one of those funerals and, and just tell them, well, I think your dad is lost. But in my mind, I would say, well, with all the evidence, I would think that with all the evidence you've given, I, I don't believe your dad is in heaven. I believe that's evidence that God loved your dad and reached out to your dad and tried for a lifetime to bring him, bring him to heaven. Listen, God has worked in our lives. God has... God has convicted us of sin. There, there are people who are listening to me right now, and you can point to things in your life. It's clear that God's been working, but it doesn't count until you respond. You know, so many times it, we won't say no to God, but we, we will say something that has the same effect. We'll say tomorrow, not now. Wait a little longer. But listen, if God is working in your life and you feel the pull of God, then you need to come before winter in the area of surrendering to the Savior. You need to trust that Jesus has, living, has lived a sinless life and he's died to pay the penalty for your sins. And that's your only hope. But in Jesus, you can have forgiveness. And to surrender your life and turn from your sin and hold on to Christ, not that you'll be a perfect person, but you're going to hold on to him as he forms his character in you, that you surrender yourself to Christ. Come before winter. Come before winter. You know, I, I think the worst invention ever in, in history of mankind, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the worst invention ever is the snooze button, right? And I'm not much of a snoozer now, but earlier in life, the snooze button made me miss a few classes and caused me some problems. It's just too easy to hit the snooze button. Nothing good ever came from hitting the snooze button. So today, we've talked about all kind of different decisions, and I, I think the challenge of the Spirit is to come before winter. Come before winter. Make a decision now. And so I'm asking you, my prayer for you this morning is that nobody would hit the snooze button, but that you would respond to the Lord. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Father in heaven, forgive me when I have not redeemed the time. Forgive me when I have wasted time. Forgive me when I have acted like 
Time would never run out, and I have forfeited the opportunities that you've given to me. But help me today to be one. Help me today, today, to do the things that I know that you're calling me to do. Help me today to come before winter. Father, I believe that, you've, that your Holy Spirit is laying something on the heart of every person here. And maybe it's something that we've talked about today, or maybe it's something we've not even, we've not even addressed, but you've addressed it. Your Spirit has addressed it in our hearts. May every person today respond to your call. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.